Well, good afternoon again. <clears throat> We've been meeting pretty regularly here, seems like, lately. That'll cease here shortly. We have another happening coming up beginning of next month. I thought I'd let you know a little ahead of time. The fast of the 10th month is coming up on January 2nd. That's the Monday uh, fast of the 10th month. That had to do with the beginning of the siege against Jerusalem. And uh, indeed, even with worldwide, the siege of the state of California came in January. So there, there are a lot of tie-ins here and there. I won't get into that today, but maybe we will later. Well, last night I went through a little bit about uh, the Feast of Dedication, which Temple had had to do with, and how that was impacted there with Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, and Joshua. That was the time that this was speaking of, when that temple was dedicated, and then when it was uh, defiled by Antiochus Epiphanes, when the 167 and then 164 B.C., when it was restored. And Christ was walking on Solomon's porch at the temple during the Feast of Dedication in the winter, it says in the book of John, and we went there. Uh, I think you'll see by the time today is over why he would not have been anywhere else during the Feast of Dedication. Uh, the ramifications go way, way, way beyond what I got into last night. And that was on purpose. I wanted to give a little bit of history on it. But uh, let's look at some overriding ramifications in a broader picture today because it has everything to do with you and me. Uh, these days we've been keeping not just history. Let's go back to First Kings chapter 8. As we know the story, David was not allowed to build a temple. Uh, David was a man after God's own heart. David is a man who was forgiven for his sins. He will be the king of all Israel in the kingdom of God. So he'll have one of the highest positions in God's government. Uh, and yet, because of some of the things he did, God caused consequences to come. Now, the sin was forgiven, but the consequences occurred. Uh, his first child with Bathsheba died. Uh, he had trouble with his own sons in his kingdom, and some of them died. And uh, his reign was a troubled reign all the way through. And yet, I think he is one of the finest examples, really, in the Bible for us, that it doesn't matter where we've done, where we've been, what we've done, uh, we can be forgiven and we can be in God's kingdom uh, in spite of everything. That does not mean that there aren't some consequences to the things that we do, because here on this earth there are consequences with family, with children, with people at work, everywhere. Uh, we make mistakes or sins. There are certain consequences. 
although God may forgive the penalty, which is death. But the upshot of it here was that God told David, you can't build a temple. That was a consequence of some of his sin. And he told him, your son Solomon will build it. And I've made the point before that that did not deter the zeal and the commitment of David whatsoever. He said, okay, I accept that. And he immediately went out and started gathering up the materials and getting ready for that temple to be built. I don't get to build it, but I'm going to put my whole heart, mind, body, and soul in getting ready for it to be built, even though Solomon's going to do it. So David's attitude rose way above his sins. It rose way above the consequences that God put on him. He was so dedicated to God, and you read that in the Psalms, you see it all the way through. We've been singing them all week. You see his commitment to God in those Psalms. And sometimes I'm just amazed as I sing through some of those at the things David said that had to do with Christ's coming, with the New Testament church even, with end-time prophecies. God gave him insights almost unbelievably of things of the future. So the relationship between God and David kind of went up and down, but it wound up, up, all the way. And God worked that out. But here we have Solomon who then went ahead and built that temple, and it was a magnificent edifice. You read through all the details of it, and it's, well, it's just incredible. I don't have time to do all that, but you've read it, and you can read it again. So it was finally finished, and the Israelites were gathered for a great dedication. This was the finest building that had ever been built on earth. Well, in some ways you might compare it to Noah's Ark. That was pretty magnificent too. But not in the same way. It wasn't opulent. It was covered with pitch, if you will. This was covered with gold and silver and precious stones and just everything they could gather up to make it as great a splendor as could be done. And you see in, Col in Solomon's mind and mentality that he had that kind of imagination and that kind of desire to make a large impression, if you will, uh, in that which he built for himself, the gardens that were there, and in the temple especially. He was a man of great art artistic uh, ability and desire to put that out there. Uh, because he followed the instructions and he made it as magnificent as could be made. He, he felt that uh, compulsion, I'll call it that commitment, to get it done. And he says here in chapter 8, verse 17, It was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And the Lord said to David my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house in my name, you did well that it was in your heart. That, was, that part was good. And then he said that he won't build it. Uh, and the Lord has performed his word that he spoke. And I am risen up in the room of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and have built a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. 
So he makes this a very, very important moment. All Israel listening and hearing these words. Built to the Lord God of Israel. The auditorium in Pasadena was dedicated to the great God. A dedication and commitment we'll talk about again in a little while. But it's, this is setting the tone. So then he prayed a prayer. Uh, I'm not going to read all of it. I did some time back, but I'm not going to today for sake of time. I have a lot to cover, but uh, we'll hit a few highlights. In verse 21, And I have set there a place for the ark, where it is the covenant of the eternal, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So this is in a setting with the most important items in Israel's history. So Solomon stood before the altar of the Eternal in the presence of all the congregation of Israel, millions of people actually, and spread forth his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath who keeps covenant and mercy with your servants that walk before you with all their heart. What a statement. There is no God, and you will not depart from or cause any problems for, but you will be on the side of anyone who worships you with their whole heart. Now, that's a statement that rings throughout the entire Bible. Over and over again in the prophecies, turn to God with your whole heart. I've made it a a milepost, a standard, if you will, for this ministry is that we turn to God with our whole heart because that's what He wants. That's what He's always wanted. That's what He told the Laodiceans in Revelation 3. Turn and repent and come to Me. So that is addressed right here. I don't know how much Solomon knew from being around his father, but I feel that God inspired the words that Solomon spoke here, not just with that moment of that day, but with the whole time ahead of mankind until today and beyond. Because this reverberates through the years. You've kept with your servant David, my father, that you promised him. You spoke also with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. So, he promised David this would be done even though David wouldn't do it. And David had had problems. And God had forgiven him. And God kept his word to David in spite of everything. Now, there's a God to worship. There's someone to look to. Let's go on down verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have builded. He says, I know this is not an adequate house in any way for you, the God of the entire universe. But God said his presence would be there. Verse 29. He said, uh, halfway through the verse, My name shall be there, that you make 
may hearken to the prayer which your servant shall make toward this place, and hearken you to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel, when they shall pray toward this place, and hear you in heaven your dwelling place, when you hear, forgive. So he says, I know you can't just live here. This can't be your home. It can't contain you. But make it a place that when you're at your home in heaven and people turn to this temple, this building, and pray to you, that you will hear and answer their prayers. Now that makes this a pretty special spot, does it not? There are people building buildings all over the earth, great, huge, tall buildings. Uh, if pray, people pray toward them, God doesn't hear. This was something very special. And if any man trespass against his neighbor, and there be a, an altercation and so on, he says, judge between the evil and the righteousness. Punish the evil man. Uh, reward the righteous. I'm just kind of paraphrasing this. Verse 34, Hear you in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land which you gave to their fathers. If they're taken captive, bring them back. Does this begin to bring some scriptures a little bit into your mind, just reading this? Some of the prophecies we've been over and over about how he will bring his people back and bless them if, if and when they repent all through the Bible. So this is setting the stage for that. He says, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear you in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of your people Israel, that you shall teach them the good way where they should walk. Now, he had mentioned, before starting the prayer, the problems with David. He didn't get into all of it, but all Israel standing there knew of all of it. And God had already fulfilled this promise before this temple was even built. Because David had sinned and had been afflicted and had been beset with enemies. And he turned to God with his whole heart and God forgave him. So before this was even built, God gives an example right there to Israel of his love, his kindness, his mercy, his forgiveness, and his grace. <coughs> then Solomon probably has some of that in mind as he says these words. Because he wants for Israel what God had given his father David. And then he talks about all kinds of problems that might come and how they should repent. Uh, end of verse 43, he says, This house which I have builded is called by your name. So it was appropriate to call this temple by the name of God. Then if they sin, he says here in heaven in verse 45, maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no man that sins not, all that sin and come short of the glory of God. How much of the New Testament is actually a repeat or a quote from the Old Testament? 
so much of it. And you be angry with them and deliver them to the enemy so that they carry them away captives unto the land of the enemy far or near. Yet if they shall bethink themselves in the land where they were carried captives and repent and make supplication to you in the land of them that carried them captives, saying, We have sinned and have done perversely, we have committed wickedness, and so return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, which led them away captive, and pray to you toward their land which you gave their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the house which I have built for your name. And hear you their prayer, and maintain their cause, and forgive them, and so on. Uh, verse 53, For you did separate them from among all the people of the earth. Now, this is the dedication of this temple, which was later destroyed. And last night we reviewed a little bit that which was built under Zerubbabel and Joshua through Ezra. After they came out of captivity, and they had repented with their hearts. And even Daniel in his prayer, in Daniel 8 there, he admitted that they had sinned and come short and asked God to forgive uh, the weakness and so on. And shortly after that, they were released, the end of 70 years of captivity, and went to build or rebuild the temple and got it done and then had a feast of dedication afterward. I said I did not know how in the world I came up with eight days, but that was last night. I know today. We'll get to it in a minute. Okay, it goes on down. Verse 56, Blessed be the Eternal, and has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses his servant. Now, that's a nice testimony that to this point, the temple been, having been built, Solomon can look back and say, every promise you made in the past has been fulfilled. Therefore, when God tells us in Isaiah that this is like the rainbow of Noah to him and it's going to happen, and he's talking there in Isaiah 54 about Israel remnant of the church returning and building, that's the gravity he puts with it. And if he makes that kind of promise, we have this whole Old Testament and the New as backup to say God is going to do these things. We have trouble sometimes believing them or understanding them even. But he says he will. It's all right here in this one prayer. Verse 58, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways. Jeremiah, where is it, about 33, 34, somewhere right in there, where he says, Seek me, and you will find me, and I will be found of you. I just love that second thought. You seek me, you can find me. But I will not play hide-and-seek. You will find me. I will be found of you. 
I'll put it in such a way that it will happen. He has his part in it. We can only turn so far. We can only be so godly. And he has to make up the difference. He has to pick up his side of the relationship. Because you can pray with all your heart forevermore. And if God never answers, it didn't do a bit of good. But he says, if we'll do our part, he will be found. He will do his part. So, he promises it's worth your trouble. And he will maintain, verse 59, second half, the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel at all times, as the matter shall require. God will always be there. Didn't Christ say, I will never leave you nor forsake you? He's quoting from this prayer. Same words almost. That all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. We find that that statement in prophecies in the future. Didn't he say that in Isaiah 45 about the gold and the silver that's hid in the promised land? That it will be used to show all the people around the world that he is God. Doesn't it say that he'll use the two witnesses to preach the gospel around the world so that all people will know that he is God? And Ezekiel says it dozens of times, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Here it is in this dedication prayer. This is the dedication of the temple of God. I put in here again. Let your heart therefore be perfect with the Lord our God to walk in His statutes and keep His commandments as at this day. What did Christ say? If you enter into life, keep the commandments. And put it in many different ways. And when he offered peace, and in, I mean offerings, peace offerings, end of verse 63, So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the eternal. And he, had, and he uh, hallowed the middle of the court, and he offered the burnt offerings and so on. Verse 65, and at that time Solomon held a feast. So there was a dedication prayer, and then there was a feast that went with it. What would you call a dedication of the temple and a feast that went with it? I would call it a feast of dedication what I'd call it, <laughs> ironically. Then we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, and they dedicated it the same way. And it's been called the Feast of Dedication since. So he held a feast, and all Israel, with him a great congregation, for the, from the entering in of Hamath to the river of Egypt, before the eternal our God, seven days, and seven days, even fourteen days. <coughs> so, it went on seven days and then seven more days. I guess. Now, that I didn't see the way that was written. Yeah, it says even fourteen. But then it says on the eighth day, he sent the people away. I need to look at that some more. Because I, I read the part that it was seven days, and then I said the eighth day, he sent them away, so that makes a total of eight days. 
And there were words given to them on that eighth day as they left. But this sounds like it. Check the Hebrew. This sounds like it was seven days and then they did it another seven. Now, lest there be a contradiction, he may have said it at seven days and was going to send them away on the eighth day, but they went ahead and said, let's do this seven more days. There's another, there's another uh, example of that. Where was that? I'm trying to remember now. Where they kept it even longer than was required. It won't quite come to me, but that's in there. Anyway, uh, there was a feast of dedication after the dedication of this temple, same as they did in Ezra and Nehemiah, so there was precedent for it. And precedent for today, as we shall see. Now, let's consider some things. There's a story that's been around for a long time, and many of you, or maybe all of you, have already heard it. But I think it's appropriate to use it here as an example. There was this farmer, and things had not been going so well for him, and uh, this broke and that broke, and the crop didn't happen, and he was getting really discouraged and upset. And... Uh, the chicken saw this, looked around, and said, boy, this poor farmer, he's so discouraged. So he went to the pig, and he said, pig, our, our owner, our, our farmer, he said, he's so discouraged, we ought to do something special for him and cheer him up some. He says, why don't we give him a ham and eggs dinner, or breakfast it should have been. Then the pig looked at him, and he said, well, he said, for you, that's a day or two's work. For me, that's total commitment. <laughs> the commitment can have different values. Different things can mean different things to different people. The pig was going to have to die for his half. I looked it up. Webster's Dictionary, and I wrote down those definitions, and I left that sheet of paper at home, But so I'm doing this a little bit from memory, but uh, defining the word dedication, piece of dedication, what's dedication? What is it anyway? And the first two definitions in Webster's Dictionary had to do with God and church. He got down to other things that you could dedicate, uh, but he started out with those important things. And basically, to set aside God and set aside a church for holy use. Now, those are my words, not his, but it's very close to that. So a dedication is something that is very, very high on a spiritual level as its first meaning. And the second was similar, and it went down to lesser things like dedicating a swimming pool to the whoever. But that's high on the list. And then commitment. Uh, again, my words, to set a purpose or goal, spiritually speaking, was the uh, context, with specific purpose and emotion. Again, my words, but 
very similar to what Webster said. So there is a great level there of involvement. It mentions zeal in one of those two definitions. Something you go about with great zeal and energy because it is a commitment and it is a dedication. So if you are truly dedicated to something, you spend time with it. You get involved with it. There are people who are devoted to golf, let's say, and they play it every day. Or they're devoted or committed to some cause. It could even be homosexuality they're devoted to. But they go about it with zeal and energy and commitment for their goals. Now, I picked one of the worst things that you could be committed to that just came to mind. But what if it was a truly high, important thing that you committed yourself to? How much more zeal and energy and commitment would you have toward it? This isn't something you just decide and then, oh well, I kind of got past the religious part of life, let's get on with something else. Or people came, they were taught about the true Sabbath. And then as the church began to come apart, they had not been convicted. They had not been committed with zeal to keeping the Sabbath, as they had proved in the Scripture, is to be done. And some of them gave it up and went right back to where they'd come from. Like a sow in the mud or a dog to his vomit, as the Scripture defines it. So what we're discussing here is a level of commitment. Total commitment. That's what the pig said. For me, that's total commitment. That's not just something I'll do as a nice thing, but this is something that if I do it, my life is at stake. I'm willing to give my life for the farmer. Now that story never got finished, and it was just dropped right there as to whether they went ahead with it. But when we come to a point where it is a lifelong and total commitment, what are you? You're a living being. You're a living soul. And total commitment means that this is until I can no, can no longer be committed, which is at death. It also means, as we shall see, that you may not have any choice in that death, but your commitment has to be to that level. Commitment. Dedication. Now let's consider a few examples from the Bible. A lot of them are listed in Hebrews 11. I won't go there and I won't have time for all of them. But let's consider Noah. Here he was living in a very violent age. Enoch, perhaps the only other one around that understood. And God came to him and said, Noah, I want you to build me a boat. I want it to be as big as a modern ocean liner. Noah hadn't seen one of those yet. 
He said, it'll take you about a hundred years. Now that's a pretty good commitment, is it not? I've got to commit a hundred years to building this. I don't know whether God told him it'd take him that long or not. <laughs> Maybe he didn't. Maybe he let Noah imagine, well, this take about three months. Okay, we'll, we'll do it. But then it took a long, long time. He had there what you might call a lifetime commitment. And really, it was, because God told him, I'm going to destroy every man, woman, and child. I'm going to drown them. And if you build this boat, you can get on it, and you can float through, and you can live. So what he was making was a lifetime commitment, because if he didn't build a boat, he would drown along with everybody else. So when he committed to this, he knew that his life was at stake. Now, knowing your life is at stake means that you hurry. It means that you use zeal. You use energy. You put your heart into it because you know you could die and would die if you didn't do what was asked. Noah made a huge commitment and dedication there to do that job. What about David? Here comes this little fellow been tending the sheep and killed a bear or two and a few lions with his slingshot. And he's delivering stuff to his brothers who are in the army. And he gets there and he finds out, what's going on here? There's the Philistines over there and here's my God's army. And there's no fighting going on. What's, what's the deal? Well, David, we got a problem. There's this nine-foot giant over there, and he's threatening us and says that he's going to kill us all. And we believe him. They believed him. They believed Goliath. They were scared to death of him. They weren't in any way prepared to commit themselves to getting rid of Goliath so they could whip the Philistines and send them home. And David said, Who is this man that stands before the armies of the living God? I'll take him on. And they said, You're a nice shepherd boy. Go back to the sheepies, please. You can't handle this. Leave this to the men. And David said, Which man? Who are you talking about? All those yellow bellies are standing over there doing nothing. Well, if you want to, go for it. So then they put all this armor on him and just about sagged him to the ground because he wasn't a big old boy. So he took it off and got him some stones and went after Goliath. Killed him. Took the guy's sword and cut his head off and held it up probably with both hands. That was a big head. And then Israel found some courage. Had some leadership. Somebody who was committed to the God of all the earth and God's army and was willing to commit his life. Because normally speaking, Goliath would have killed that little pipsqueak easily. But God guided the stone, I have no doubt. So there was a commitment of life. God saw that. 
When it came time to replace Saul as king of Israel, God remembered that. I remember a little fellow up there tending the sheep, and he stood up before all the armies of the Philistines and gave backbone to the Israelites. Now, man didn't recognize, really, the whole situation. When it came time to make a king, it says, well, it's the son of uh, Jesse, I guess it was. Well, they didn't figure out which one it was. So he had to go down one at a time and laugh. Well, there's one more. He's up with the sheep again. That's the one I want. Bring it. God wanted commitment. David committed his life to God. And he meant it. And he backed it up by going after a nine-foot, I think, six-inch giant. There's commitment. Now, if you were an emasculated young man taken to Babylon and had all your manhood taken away with an operation and therefore were not quite as uh, powerful, maybe, as a normal man who had all his body parts. And there you were. And you loved God. And you prayed to God regularly. And this is in the book of Daniel now that I'm beginning to speak of. That is sealed until the end. So the things in the book of Daniel are things that portend to the end. Some of the things that happened in Daniel are going to happen again in some form or another. Because it's an end time book reciting history as a reference to the future. So Daniel was worshiping God. And he had enemies because he had come up, even as a eunuch, he had come up to a high level in Nebuchadnezzar's court. These men wanted him dead because he was going against their desires. He was doing the things of God, and they didn't like that because their things didn't have anything to do with God. So they made this plot and caused the king to build this magnificent structure that everybody had to worship. And the king liked this. This is a good idea. Make a, make a statue of me and everybody has to worship it. Hey, I'm with that. So he did it. And they knew Daniel would not bow down. And then they decided, after he wouldn't, that he was to go in the lion's den because that was part of the deal that they had made with the king. If they won't, this is how they'll be killed. And Daniel knew this. And yet he went to his window and prayed like he always did. And they saw it, and they reported to the king. And the king said, well, I like Daniel. But you know, I spoke this, and I made it law, and my hands are tied away with him. And the king stayed up all night worried about Daniel. God took care of Daniel. Stopped the mouths of the lions. Wow. Now here's someone who committed his life to God. 
totally. And the fruits were there. When it came time to either be thrown in with all those long claws and sharp teeth, or just simply kneel down and bow your head before this stone for a minute or so, and everything would have been fine. No. He worshipped the true God of heaven. The beast of the false prophet didn't mean a thing to him looking forward. Nebuchadnezzar and his image meant nothing to him. The God in heaven meant everything, including his life. And a terrible death it would have been being eaten alive. That's what you call commitment and dedication. Not just the pig and the chicken. That's kind of cute. But this is real dedication. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Same deal. Build a fire and make it seven times hotter. They won't worship my statue. We'll fix them. So hot it even killed the guys that threw them in the fire. And there they were walking around a fourth being with them, and they came out not even smelling like smoke. Now there's some great deliverance. And that's in an end-time book, and there's going to be some great deliverance ahead for some of God's people who are going to be put in situations where their life will be required otherwise. And God even says that some of them will be martyred, will be killed for his name's sake. So that's in the near future. These aren't just bedtime stories. Abraham. He worshipped God. And God said, Abraham, I want you to leave your family. I want you to go to a place you've never heard of or ever seen or ever been. Now wait, Lord. All my family's here. I love them. We get along. We're getting along pretty good for the most part. And man, I I don't want to go somewhere I've never been. There might be booger bears out there that eat me. He could have come up with all kinds of excuses, but Abraham just packed his bags and took off. Wherever God leads me, I'm going. Most of us would not do that today. We might be adventuresome enough to travel to a foreign country if we have our passport and we have a ticket and an airplane and we know where we're going to land and we have a hotel there and then we have this tour guide that's going to show us some old churches. We might do that. Or something even more adventuresome. Swim with the sharks off Australia or something. But when God says, you got no visa, no passports, you don't know anybody, you're going to have to figure out how to get there on your own, and you don't even know where you're going, go. Hmm. How are you going to get there? You must be going to be depending on God to show you the way somewhere along the path. So, you know, there were lots of bad people around, and there were lots of dangerous things on the earth. And he could have died very easily doing something like that. So, he just said, I'm committed. You say it, God, I'm going. 
Now, he was going to be the father of all Israel, so he had to be tested in a lot of ways. So, then he and Sarah were childless. And God told him, you're going to have a child. And they were both beyond what it takes to get there. She was way beyond menopause, and he was way beyond his ability. They were dead, if you will, that way. And God came and says, you're going to have a baby. Yeah. And there was even some shuckling going on. Wouldn't you think? And then they waited. And nothing happened. And nothing happened. And then God comes and says, now the time's set. It's going to happen. And it did. Miraculously. He was able and she conceived. Now that was an absolute, complete miracle. Now that had been a test in itself. A pretty good size one, if you will. And then Isaac grew, and he was the only son. And one day God said, oh, there's Isaac. You love that kid, don't you? Abraham said, oh yeah, Sarah and I, we, we so much appreciate you having given us this son. We knew we were incapable of it. And somehow you intervened, and bingo, here's a kid. And we've just loved him so much. We sure do thank you for giving us this child. And God says, you're welcome. Now I want you to take him out and kill him. Those must have been chilling words. But Abraham did not equivocate. He did not question. He saddled his ass and said, hey Isaac, let's go do a sacrifice. And in his mind, the sacrifice was Isaac. He didn't tell Isaac that. He would have had a little bit of a problem. So Isaac went with him. Now, you talk about commitment to God. Wow. This is dedication. Kill your only, only son. I don't think most of us have really considered killing any of our children. Maybe a moment of emotion now and then, but not seriously. But this was serious business. They took him out there to do it. And then God intervened and says, now I know. God has to know. You and I are totally, completely committed dedicated to his purposes and willing to give our lives for him. He has to know that. Now, he felt it for Abraham through the pregnancy and non-pregnancy and the whole story. And that was a big test if they believed in God or not. But when it came time to sacrifice that son, that was a tremendous test. And God said, I... I thought you'd come out this way, but now I know. Does God know that about you and me? Does He know we would give our lives for His purposes and His kingdom? Is He totally convinced of that? 
Rahab took in a couple of Israelite spies. She knew that if she hid them, and it was found out, she would die on the spot. Now here was a hooker, plain and simple. Lowest level of civilization, maybe, you might say, in some ways. Maybe pimps are just as bad or worse. I mean, let's not grade it here. This is, in the eyes of society, a fallen woman. Not worth anything. And if those eyes had been found, she was dead. And she didn't know God. And she didn't know Israel much. She had heard some stories about Jericho, maybe, or what? No, whatever she'd heard. Was that at Jericho? Was that the city? Sometimes the details get away from me. I'm getting old. Anyway, she knew it was death. And whatever she did know, she made up her mind to be committed to and dedicated to the God of Israel in whatever form she had the opportunity to so do. So she took them in and hid them, and they got away. She was like the pig. Total commitment. If they catch you, I die. How did God respond? Here a Gentile woman knew very little, I don't know how much, but very little, and dedicated herself to God's purposes and His people. She's listed in Hebrews 11 as one of the faithful who will be in the kingdom of God. For a Gentile woman, thousands of years ago, just hiding a couple of spies, how how generous, how faithful, how loving, how willing is our God to go to bat for us if we will commit ourselves totally to Him. We come to Moses. His life was at stake all the way through. It was at stake when the princess took him into Pharaoh's court. Because all those little white babies were supposed to be killed. And those were the people of Ham. They were black. So it wasn't too hard to figure out that was an Israelite kid. But the princess somehow convinced him to not kill this white boy. And then later on, he killed a Mitzriamite, and Pharaoh was, would have killed him. So he went out and fled to the desert and lived 40 years. And then he saw this bush burning. i got to check that out. That's weird. And there was God. He says, I want you to go back and save my people. You mean back to Egypt? <laughs> They're trying to kill me. If I go back there, I'm a dead man. I understand that. So go. Oh. And he went. And he went up against the whole Mitzriamite empire. It was a huge empire. It wasn't a little desert 
forgotten third world country then. It was over here, and they were mainly black. People of Ham. Israel, I mean, Isaiah, the Psalms say at least three times. And some Assyrians were there as well, as Isaiah 52 indicates. But primarily, a black-dominated empire. And he went back there. I've entered South Chicago and been scared in other places. But that was nothing compared to what he was going back. The whole government knew him. But then he found out that that Pharaoh had died. That's a relief. But then he went up against it. And through it all, God delivered Israel through Moses. And then they were hiking out of there and they come to the Red Sea and here come the Mitzriamites. This is a death sentence. <laughs> Total commitment. It all made it. They looked at Moses and says, What in the world are you doing to us? You brought us out here to die. Here comes Pharaoh, and here's the sea, and we can't cross it. We're dead. God delivered them. Opened the sea, dried it with the wind, and they walked through. And the Mitzriamites came thundering after them, said, oh, well, let's see, I guess they made it, we can too. In they came and drowned. What a God. What a God. Wow. What did it take? Moses' commitment and the people's commitment. And then the people wa wa wavered. It wasn't long after that they said, you brought us out here to die, we got no water. Man, people are something, aren't they? Aren't we? Elijah? Here's this little guy, basically on his own. God said, I want you to call all Israel together. We've got Baal worshippers here. Get all Israel together. They're all Baal worshippers, most of them. And here's 400 prophets. I want you, Elijah to go up against all these prophets, and I want you to do it before all Israel who are Baal worshippers. Now, the odds stacked here are pretty nasty, aren't they? A few million to one, and the government and the priests along with it. And Elijah says, well, let's see. How are we going to do this? Okay, let's have a sacrifice. You guys build a sacrifice to Baal, and... Worship him and ask him to destroy me, and we'll see how that goes, and then I'll build a fire and ask him to destroy you. Let's see how this goes. You go first. So they built a big fire, and they did all these sacrifices, and they danced around, and they used to have, in their beliefs, if you cut yourself and drew blood, that was a good thing. So they were slashing and cutting and bleeding all around this whole thing and hollering for Baal to save them and to deliver them. And Elijah was standing there saying, He must be asleep. I think he went on a trip. How you boys doing? So they cut themselves even more and went on and on with this. And finally, fire went out. Elijah said, All right, bring wood. Let's get this fire going good. Bring lots of wood. And he said, 
Now bring water. Say what? I've never used water as a fire starter before. Oh, bring water. Well, okay, whatever you say. Brought lots of water and dumped it on the wood. Got the fire started right up. Said a prayer and called out to God. And all kinds of things began to happen. But the priest of Baal couldn't make happen at all. And then some of the people began to wake up and say, Elijah's God must be God. And then Elijah says, round up those 400 prophets of Baal. Round them all up. Don't let any get away. Get them all. I want you to bring them over here. And it sounds like in the Scripture, he lined them all up and killed them all with his own hand. Now, whether he just ordered it and others did it, it doesn't say. But it said Elijah killed all those prophets of Baal. Now, did he think, when God sent him on this little mission, about all those Israelites who loved Baal, and all those prophets who loved Baal, and think, you know, this could go south. I could be killed real easily. And he could have been. Except that there is a God. And he took care of it. But Elijah had the commitment and the dedication Whatever you say, Lord, I'm doing it. Let's get her done. Are the two witnesses going up against all the princes of Baal? Not 400. There's probably 400 different religions or more. But all of them, millions of them, they're going up against. They better be committed. They better be dedicated. Because it says at the end they're going to die. <laughs> All right, let's start drawing this together to where it gets really important. Let's talk about a piece of dedication we have not considered in that way. Not listed in the Bible as a temple of Solomon or a temple of Zerubbabel or of Herod. But there's another, there's another temple spoken of. Let's go to Ephesians 2. <coughs> Verse 19. Now therefore, speaking to the congregation, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief corner stone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows to a holy temple in the eternal, in whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, God did not dwell in the temple of Solomon totally. His presence was there. But here he says, you are an habitation of God. A holy temple. Now, this temple is far more important than Solomon's or Zerubbabel's. This is the temple of God that he built, that Christ himself built. Not a man, not Solomon, not Ezra, 
not Zerubbabel, God himself. And Christ is the chief cornerstone. Was there a dedication of that temple? Well, most assuredly. How was it dedicated? The one who founded it, the one who was the chief cornerstone, came to this earth and showed total dedication. He showed total commitment and found this temple that you and I are part of. He was willing to commit his life. We've seen a lot of examples of that, and there are a whole lot more of them in the Bible already today. But this is the most important one. This is where the excitement really gets generated. He came to this earth, and he was hated of all mankind, basically. And he knew that would happen. But he had committed himself to the death. And he was born, he grew up, and everybody thought, here's that little bastard from Nazareth, doesn't have a father, had low repute. Then he began to do some things, heal people, and became an important figure. John the Baptist baptized him. The Holy Spirit came down like a dove to sit upon him when he was baptized in the water. The living water. Moses gave them physical water that Christ provided through the rock. He is the rock of, a, of ages. He is the chief cornerstone. He gives us living water, <clears throat> symbolized at his baptism and ours. He's the light of the world, as he himself said. And he tells us to be a light to the world. Now, he was killed on Passover on the 14th of Abib. He was terribly tortured, worse than any man has ever been tortured. And then he was hung on a stake and finally had a sword put into his guts and finished bleeding out. And he said, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. Because he had come to establish a temple. A temple made without hands. His own body being the chief cornerstone in his mind of that temple. And Passover is the feast of dedication of the temple of God. Because that is the day that the chief cornerstone was killed and made possible the salvation of mankind. And then we have several days there that we observe, seven altogether, to show our commitment, our dedication to Him. So we are willing to change our lives completely from worshiping pagan holidays, pagan gods, like 
Peter, the non-apostle, like Mary, who was never designated that, like Zeus. I'm seeing things about Zeus today. They're reestablishing all those pagan gods right now as we speak. But we accepted that Passover when we were baptized. We partook of the living water of Christ, symbolic through physical water. And he gave us the light of truth. And then we spend seven days, he doing the greatest part on the first day, and then we have six for man, to put sin out of our lives, to change nearly everything. We didn't keep any of the commandments of God, basically, before we came across the truth, the living water of doctrine. And then we began to change, one thing at a time, one thing at a time. And we have committed to being just like Christ. To be just like Him. And that's not blasphemy. We aren't any much like Him, but we're committed to do that. And that takes energy and zeal and conviction. I think we can equate what he did there to a feast of dedication of a new church, of a new temple. He dedicated it by giving his life. The sacrifices. Solomon gave sacrifices at the feast of dedication. Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel and Joshua gave sacrifices at the feast of dedication of that temple. Jesus Christ made the greatest sacrifice of all to establish the greatest temple that there will be. Throughout all eternity, he made that move. He went beyond the pig. By far. And then on Pentecost, he activated that church by sending his Holy Spirit and giving them the power the will, the help to overcome, to grow, and to be like he and his father. And he required the apostles whom he taught to make a lifetime and life commitment to him as well. And as he had been tortured and hung, so were all they but John. And he apparently was put in a cauldron of boiling oil, which normally would have killed you instantly. But he did a miracle with him as he did with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he came out of the boiling cauldron of oil with no oil or fire smell and lived on. Because God said, yes, you have to give up your life but I'm going to give you an example here of John who had an awful lot of love. And I'm going to save him out of it just like out of the lion's den. And he did. What kind of a God do we worship? Wow. What a fine example. And then he offered you and I the opportunity to be part of that temple to be the building stones, 
It gets better. Let's go to Revelation 21. Here we're talking about the holy city. And far beyond what Solomon could have even begun to dream of. You had pearls that were the gates. And it shows the size of the pearl. And they were incredible. There's no oyster on earth that could lay this pearl. These are a specific creation of God. Streets of gold. Solomon didn't have those. This is a wonderful city comprised of 144,000 people who have become a part of that temple. And we are offered this opportunity. Verse 22, And I saw no temple there, the holy city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And we're joined to them, to Christ in marriage, to the Father as His dearest of sons. We're part of it. We're part of it now, but not yet in glory. The city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Now you talk about light, there it is, the light of God. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth who bring their glory and honor to it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations to it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life, 144,000 of those, and then angels and other created beings. You have been made a part of, in building, the temple of Almighty God. You will be glorified, if faithful, dedicated, true, fully convicted to be a part of it. Now does the Feast of Dedication mean just a little bit more? We have to be dedicated to the heavenly temple of God, started by Christ with his sacrifice, which was the greatest sacrifice ever given in the annals of history in the universe. I'm going to read one more scripture to you. Hebrews chapter 11. No, it's 12 I want. He's talking about here how we've not resisted unto blood, striving against sin in verse 4, and how God has to chasten us and scourge us, and that He scourges every son whom He loves, so that we might learn obedience. But He comes on down and He says, verse 11, Now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous. That which we've been going all through for the last over 30 years is not joyous. And a lot of the things that people went through that I've recounted earlier in this sermon were certainly not joyous. 
Lions and big fires are not. And giants that we have to fight are not. And going where we have no clue where we're headed are not. And we've not known where we were going these years, for the most part. Now, no chasing seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. They respond. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet. Lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Be faithful, be true, be committed, overcome. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Are we supposed to fight among ourselves? Are we to be offended and give offense? No, we're to make peace with all that is within us, with everybody around us. We have to swallow pride, ego, vanity, and self in order to do that. Looking diligently, zealously, lest any man fall of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and therefore many be defiled. That's happened in the church of God here in the last decades. It's happened. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person, as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Contrast Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Daniel, Elijah, Moses with Esau. No comparison. This one morsel of bread, yeah, I need a little soup. You can have my birthright, no big deal. This is our birthright. How much do we love it? How easy would it be to let someone take it away? Satan or someone else. Our family even. People put their family ahead of God. The Church of England even had a saying that blood is thicker than water. Our relative's blood is more important to us than the water of Christ, was what they were saying. Because people will sometimes turn away from God in order to do whatever it is they want to do with their family. No. Christ said, forsake your father, your mother, your relatives, your kids, everybody, and come and follow me. This is the most important thing there is on earth. Now, that doesn't mean we literally have to tell all of our relatives to go to hell. What that means is put God first. And if anything comes up, put Him first. Even to the point of Elisha saying, let me bury my aunt, or let me say goodbye to my family. And Elijah said, okay, hurry, then come on and follow me. And Christ said, give up your family and come and follow me. You've got to love me more than you love anybody else. Anything else. Are we committed? 
How committed are we? What would it take to pull you away from the love of Christ? And what did he say? He said, I will never leave nor forsake you. I won't do it. The only way we can get separated from him is if we allow someone or something to separate us from him. Because he won't be the one who initiates it. We saw that in Solomon's prayer. We've seen it all the way through. He delivered Daniel and so on. Don't be like Esau, who took it lightly. This is dedication. This is commitment. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. This just tore him up what he had done. And he hated Jacob with a passion. And he's going to come against Jacob here at the end, and it is going to be Edomites who will revel over us when we go down, along with others. But Edom will be there. The children of Esau still hate us. For you are not come to the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, Speaking of Mount Sinai. Because you're not come there. Well, where are we then? And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. Don't let us listen to God. We don't want to hear God. We might listen to Moses, but Aaron's building us a nice calf down here. We're having a really nice dance. For they could not endure that which was commanded. They weren't committed enough. They weren't dedicated enough. And if so much as a beast touch the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Going to Sinai before God in that mountain, thundering and smoking, scared him witless. He says, that's not where we're going, brethren. Where are we going? Where are we committed to? What must we do? You are come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, we just read about in Revelation 21, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven and will be part of that city which comes down. And to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of just men made perfect. That little Mount Sinai was nothing compared to what you're coming before. Let's read on. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, the founder of the new temple, which you are blocked in. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Christ's sacrifice and his blood are far beyond what Abel's blood pouring out on the ground murdered amounted to. His has ramifications forevermore. See that you refuse not him that speaks. He's speaking today through these words in this book that we've been reading. 
The voice of God, the light of God, the water of truth is in this book. That's where we've come. See that you refuse not him that speaks. For if they escaped not who refused him that spoke on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven. What he said on the earth, people turn from. Now he speaks from heaven through these words and will come and thunder his voice. Whose voice then shook the earth. They had an earthquake in his death. And people were resurrected and came out of the graves when he was resurrected. But the earthquake and the opening of the graves occurred when he died. What a voice. What a speech. And then they walked into the city when he was resurrected. What a witness. This was, that was bigger than Sinai. That was a whole lot bigger than Sinai. Yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. He's going to have to shake it all to get rid of Satan and man's influence. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. That's written to you and me. The things that cannot be shaken will remain. Can you be shaken? What would it take to shake you? Wherefore, we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. That's what he's after. For our God is a consuming fire. Happy feast.